everybody. Welcome on back to King of the Ride podcast. I am your host. I am Ted King. And I am on an island in Maine as we speak. I've been coming here my entire life. In fact, after both of my Tour de France 2013, 2014, this was the first place I touched down after, after leaving France. I came straight here. It is heavenly. That's why you might hear some birds chirping and waves lapping in the background. I used to come here the day after school ended as a kid, spend the entire summer up here as, as a kid being a kid. And then the day before school would resume in the fall, we'd go back home. This place is awesome. I'm excited to be here for a week of vacation. Anyway, I'm also really excited that today is a rest day of the tour, the final rest day, so that we can catch up on all the action of which there has been absolutely no shortage. If you're not interested in the tour and tour coverage, I know you're still going to enjoy this conversation. So you're welcome to fast forward the next 10 or so minutes as I, as I cover all things tour, past, present, and future. But I'm excited about the conversation that we have with Richard Freeze. Richard and I sat down just a handful of days ago and talk about his connection to the cycling world, which is his entire lifetime. He is a career in advocacy and publishing and promotion. And he has what I would call a democratization of cycling. He wants access for all types of cycling. He speaks on behalf of all types of cyclists. Richard Fries truly is a legend in his own time. I think you're going to really enjoy the show. So please, please stay tuned for that. In the meantime, questions have been pouring in about the tour. So I'm thrilled with that support and interest. Please keep them coming in. Shoot me questions at all things. I am Ted King on social media. And of course, he is Ted King at gmail.com, both of which have been working very well. I see the same question that keeps popping up, and it's definitely one that interests me. And the question is, what makes this year's race different from years past? Because I've actually, in previous podcasts, I've talked about how the race seems a bit scripted. And by that, I was referring to, we know a breakaway is going to go. We know that there are various bits of drama. We know there's crashes. We know that Peter's going to win the green jersey. I mean, there's certain things that we just come to expect. So what makes this year's race different? The action is incredibly real. So please don't think that I'm saying it's scripted like, hey, so-and-so rider, just you're allowed to go in the breakaway. It is a hard-fought battle. It's a very political battle, as you see the teams, the riders, the numbers that make it into a particular breakaway. All of that is incredibly well-orchestrated out on the road, not beforehand, not on the radios, not by by the team directors in cars with their race radios telling riders, riders what to do. That is a hard-fought battle. It is brutal, and especially you see that going into week two and now into week three. For me, the answer to the question is the number of high-ranked riders who are out of the tour. We're just two weeks in. It's It's the number of favorites to either win or end up on the podium who are out of the race. That's a big surprise to me. Rigo out. Richie Port out. Nibali out. And if it's not out of the race entirely, it's guys who seem eh, quite a bit far back. Valverde, part of this prolific three-prong approach coming from movie star all the way the heck back. So that's a huge change for me. All, all the sprinters realizing that they're not fast enough to win in the sprints is a surprise to me. To see Cav out. Kittle out. Greipel, Greipel actually, he came close out. Dylan Grunewagen out. Well, he's injured and out, but man, these guys who they, they're licking their wounds. They're two weeks in. They realize the mountains are brutal. They realize that, that glory on Champs-Élysées is still a very long way off. So, you know, they, they head home to reassess. They can see that Peter is not only proving that he's last year's race is a fluke, but Peter is basically winning the green Jersey two times over with the number of points he has. It's the number of top ranked riders that is out. There really has been an interest to me this year. And right now we effectively see sky walking away with it. But I think the reality is the race is still very, very close. One places first through eight are all less than five minutes apart. So yeah, you see big time gaps, but everything going into the final week in the Pyrenees is incredibly close. I, I predicted early on in the race that Quintana is going to go storming away in week three. So he has proven third week fitness, especially with the likes of Landa. I mean, Landa is actually ahead of him for, by 40 some odd seconds. Thomas, meanwhile, is absolutely crushing it in yellow, but he hasn't yet proven that he has three-week consistency. So 
he shows no sign of weakness. And of course, Chris Froome is right there to pick up any dribs and drabs that need to be picked up. Demolin, Tom, man, he is showing his strength as a Grand Tour winner. He's only a minute and 50 out within striking distance of Froome. And then, it, you know, that final team, uh, final time trial is going to be. I don't even have the words for it. It's going to be incredible. It's not a pancake flat 50K time trial. It's incredibly lumpy. It's 31 kilometers. Who has legs 20 days into a 21-day bike race? That is going to be fascinating. It's going to be a time trial, time trial throwdown. One of the best since that 2008 Carlos Sastra v. Cadell Evans race once upon a time. That race lives in my mind because I remember the... Hearing the stories of the mechanics taking apart every bearing on Carlos Sastra's bike to put in the lightest weight lubricant to make the bike incredibly fast for one day. That is my memory. It worked. He ended up in, in yellow. That was awesome. Froome, Chris Froome, he is being run over by the publicity boss. People are booing. They're, they're known as the untouchable evil empire. But let's remember, the guy is incredibly polite. He's well-spoken. He's very diplomatic about it all. He's not attacking people. Chris Froome is biding his time. He is a proven three-week racer. He has said in the press that he wants, he's going to be happy to see Sky win, and he's going to be very happy about that. Well, sure, that's the case. He will be happy. He'd be much happier to see Sky than another person. So... I believe his words, of course, he wants to be himself on the top step of the podium. So sure, I think he probably would be perfectly happy with Thomas winning. But Froome wants to win the tour. This is ending up as an epic battle. I mean, who's to say what's going to happen in the final week when you get somebody like Valverde or Quintana or Fugel saying going in into an epic final breakaway in the final week and Froome latching along and then pulling off what he did in the, in the Giro. It's going to be... Man, oh man, there's so much to come. Two mega stages to go. A lot of the climbs that we're going to see in the next four days, four, three out of the next four days, are climbs that we climbed at the Ngamba trip last year in Hot Route. Hot Route, as I like to call it. Tomorrow's super hard. I think it favors a guy like uh, Dan Martin. Cl uh, great climber, great descender. And then the dude's got some wicked punch in a final sprint. Wednesday's stage starts in... Banyeres, super bangers, as I like to call it. The, the stage looks like an EKG. It is up, it is down, it is up, it is down, it is up. It is a 65-kilometer stage. The first climb is 15 kilometers. If we saw a lot of people getting dropped two days ago, man, oh, man, it's going to be mayhem in that stage. The Gruppetto will literally start in the neutral zone. Then a 7-kilometer climb, and then it finishes on a 16-kilometer climb. That's 10 miles at more than 8%. That is brutal. There are fireworks that are going to go down. I think I think we're going to see people crack. I think we're going to see a little bit of that collusion that I was talking about. Guys who are four to eight minutes back, they're going to go out and race like kids again. They're going to go on mega flyers. And again, like I said, it's it's a question of who still has legs late in the race. We know Moscon is out. And that, of course, man, I want cycling to have stories. I want it to have heroes and I want it to have bad guys. And man, oh man, Johnny Moscon is not doing himself any favors. That was a despicable story. It's another one entirely I'm not going to get into. The only thing <laughs> that I think you should all do is make sure you look at the video, his apology video, and think about the, the person holding the little camera doing the video of poor Johnny having to do his apology. Poor video guy. That That is brutal. I think you're going to get a laugh out of that. Anyway, Moscon is out. Wout Poles is not the Wout of past. He he is a super domestique, but he doesn't have the strength that he had in the Giro. The very affable Luke Rowe. He has been an absolute monster at the front of the peloton, but man, dude's got to be exhausted. So basically, I think Sky is showing just the tiniest sliver of space between the armor. So then it's just a question of who has legs who can find some three third week heroics and, and make a difference. I think we might see something like a Stevie Kreisbeck who went on this kind of foolish 70 kilometer flyer last week with a tiny bit more tact and that were to work. I think that is the kind of difference we're going to see in the final week. And when I say tact, I mean, yeah, 70 kilometers to go. That's he didn't exactly attack. He just rolled off the front. If he had done that with one other person, shoot, 
six minutes at the base of Alp. That was that was the golden ticket. Um, man, another quick question that I, I got a kick out of, but we seem to get asked this all the time. What do riders eat on particularly hard stages? Now, what I've often professed is if you go to a team's breakfast or dinner table, you could deduce what team it is with a decent amount of accuracy just by looking at the condiments and basics on the table. So for example, whether it's breakfast or dinner, if there's peanut butter on the table, it's an American team. So it's either EF Traffic or BMC. If you see Speculose, the team is Dutch, probably Sunweb. Marmite means it's Aussie. It's going to be Michelton Scott. Uh, what else? The Spanish, they love their jam. The Italians absolutely loathe oats, but they will have mountains of cheese. And believe it or not, they're going to have mountains of cream cheese to put in their breakfast pasta. You heard me correctly, breakfast pasta. And then a similar vein, that's the stuff that you see in the rice bag. So Americans and Aussies, we're going to have rice cakes. Belgians love their rice tarts, which have a distinct, dip, distinct difference. The rice tart is this eggy, rice custard in a little crust. It's like a mini pie and it's absolutely divine. The Italians, I've eaten so many prosciutto paninis in my time with liquid gas. They absolutely love those. Some very mechanized teams, they they are sworn to their sponsors, bars and gels, and they eat those prolifically. And that's why I loved catch, catching up with Ian Boswell as he was talking about visiting the feed zone or as Mike Jones called it, and I always got a kick out of this, the grocery store in the race to trade snacks. After three weeks of eating the same bars and gels, those not fortunate enough to have untapped in their pockets, they trade. You go through a feed zone, and so long as it's not crazy argy-bargy, you're going to take your feed bag, you're going to grab any particular snacks that you are particularly fond of, and trade with so-and-so team that has a different sponsor, different product, a little bit of mm, palate fatigue is setting in, so it's a good time to trade snacks. Um... On a hard day, yeah, you're still going to eat a substantial breakfast. You're going to have your rice or your oats or your pasta. Those are those good slow-burning carbohydrates. And then on a stage like yesterday where you know it's going to be absolutely fireworks from the time the, the gun drops, you want your bike to be light. You're starting with one bottle rather than two. You're going to start with light pockets because they're probably going to open the feed zone earlier than the typical 50 kilometers in mark. You're going to stick closer to fast-acting energy gels like... Uh, well, you're fast-acting energy gels, providing mm, you're shooting for 60 to 80 grams of carbohydrate per hour. But in the heat of the moment, you're just you're taking it down every half hour, 45 minutes, or one hour. And then the rule of thumb, you're generally doing one bottle per hour, except for a gnarly hot day that can double up to two bottles per hour, which when you think about over the six-plus hour day, that is an incredible volume of liquid to be consuming and still end up dehydrated. And... Everybody's favorite. I don't drink Coke off the bike, but man, oh man, oh man, you will see so much Coke in a bike race. So those are answers to a few tour questions. Those are some vague predictions of what we're going to see going forward. I am excited for this final week of the tour. I am excited for our conversation with former executive director of Mass Bike, current ride advocate at Best Buddies, friend of mine, race announcer, race promoter, cycling publisher friend to all mr richard freeze please enjoy the show ladies and gentlemen i would like to introduce you to a person who has been in my life indirectly for about 15 years although we would not have really known that 15 years ago a very connected man in beginning with New England cycling, national cycling, and international cycling, none other than Richard Freeze. Welcome to King of the Ride wow. podcast. Great to be here. And we're in New England. Which we are in New England. At a good time to be in New England. Oh, it's glorious. The, uh, the humidity of last week has abated. Oh, that was rough. It was brutal. Um, what, I, what I love about this podcast is... The studio is no matter, it's where we bring the, the microphones and recording device. And so you had said, hey, let's go to Hamilton Place. I Googled it after a little bit of help. And now we're overlooking a river with a waterfall in the background. We're next to the forest and there's the Massachusetts aqueduct about 100 feet away. That's right. I brought you here for a reason. 
It's heavenly. It is. Tell me it's that like reason. A, it's like a here? Monet painting, and we are, this is a Charles River, believe okay. it or not, and uh, we are not far from I ninety five. You can kind of hear it, and then there's the Mass Pike Route nine, which is a highway. There's a commuter rail right there, and we're in this little idyllic place that I found by accident. It's like Einstein. I thought of this while riding my bike. I rode past this thing that said Hemlock Gorge. Uh-huh. I said, Gorge? There's no gorges around here. This was only a few weeks ago. So I came and checked it out. Now I, I've come a few times. There is adventure everywhere. Yes. Um, you want the good story? Yeah. One week ago, I was on this uh, executive ride. Okay. Kept running into guys on the ride. Where do you live? Needham. Oh, I just discovered Hemlock Gorge. No kidding. These guys are like, <laughs> what's Hemlock Gorge? No way. They didn't know about it. Okay. Which is sort of my theme of late is ride more, train less. These guys are on trainers with watts oh, and big time. kilojoules. And I figured you're the perfect guy that would appreciate that. You're preaching to my choir. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I trained f- and raced for a career. And now I like nothing more than going to get lost, finding a new place, going out with no no mission in mind other than pedaling my bike. Um which coming from, okay, now that I've sort of segued a bit into the gravel side, mm-hmm. we talk about this exact same thing. There is a there is adventure everywhere. You could be in, it's the same reason that NICA is ending up in Kansas. And they, they debuted that this year at the Dirty Kansas, bring NICA, the high school mountain bike league, to Kansas. We're sure there's a whole lot of prairie out there. It's not traditional mountain biking in a traditional mountain biking sense, but you're going to introduce gravel riding, gravel adventure riding, to Kansas as much as you're going to do it in Needham, as much as you're going to do it anywhere as you can roll out your backyard. I think it's the coolest thing about cycling. I it's agree. It's a little different everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, and it's like, what do you do? Now, do you hear those voices? This is actually, there's an echo bridge. So people, every now and then you get a person that is trying to get an echo. Oh. So, That's sorry. pretty good. I thought sorry it was the listeners. somebody who's going to be doing a double gainer off that <laughs> very high aqueduct. So, Okay. Quick introduction, and please chime in when I've misspoken. There are very few things that you have not done in the sport. You are a racer, professional racer, European racer. Lowercase p, yeah. Lowercase e, yeah. However, professional with a p. Writer, publisher, turned advocate, which has been a huge portion of your life. And, of course, a little bit of event promotion thrown into the mix. Um... As well as what for the past tennis years working with Best Buddies, yeah, which is, and I announce bike races here and there a little bit, which, which is, is you and I have seen each other in the strangest places. Uh huh. Exactly. That's okay. Let's jump there <laughs> immediately. So when I say I've known you for 15 years, it was attending New England bike racing and hearing the sultry voice of Richard Fries. Yeah, not that sultry, but yeah. it's good. And then, um, you know, we we progressed throughout the the years and we get to know each other a bit more. And then I'm racing my first world championships in Melbourne, Australia, elite men, world's championships, who is arguably the last person I'd expect to see or hear Richard freeze on the mic. You're the only guy I knew there. So it was I had to awesome. Say something. It was awesome. I was like, that was my first world championships. And you've, you've, they couldn't find anybody else that wanted to fly 27 hours. To oh, get you there. nailed it though. <laughs> um, and you've done, Cyclocross world yeah. champ since. I've done roads and cross a lot, and uh, I'm kind of off that carousel, which is great. It was a great experience. Uh-huh. Um, now I'm back to like riding my bike a lot. And That's a good place to be. It's if a great place if to be. Full circle means riding your bike more. I call that successful. So, oh man, oh man, oh man. Um, I, I read a little story about you. You can fact check me. Um, being, I think you were in Florida, you had recently been drafted post Iran Contra around the time yes. of the Iran Contra. I had, to, so I had to register for the draft, right? Okay. Registered for the draft. And maybe you begin to fill in the story. There's a downpour. You're on the side of the road on your bike, seeing single occupancy cars backing up the traffic. Um, as you're also in the back of your mind contemplating going to fight a war for these people and you see a new war that you need to fight. It was the Iran Contra. It was the Iran uh, hostage crisis, mm-hmm. and it was 1979. You're absolutely right. You're also a great Middlebury man for doing that much research. But yeah, I was stuck under an overpass 
and everything with single occupant vehicles as far as the eye could see. I was like, okay, wait a minute. That's when the light went on. Up until then, I was just, I got around by bike, race bikes, was totally into it. You remember that like first year of racing where it's like, you just can't get enough. It's when you break everything, you crash the most, you, <laughs> you know, you glue your pants to the chair trying to get a tire on. But, uh, and that sort of made me think next thing I know, I'm, I'm doing advocacy every chance I could get. You jumped into advocacy. Was my chronology correct? Otherwise yeah. it was racer, writer, publisher. Right. Advocacy. So, okay, let's, because we rarely do this chronologically on this show, let's do it chronologically. Racer, you jumped headlong into cycling. Mm -hmm. You found success in it. You made the leap to Europe. Yep. No small feat in an, in, pardon me. How old are you, Richard? Uh, I'm 57. Okay. So. It was crazy over there then. How do you do it? I mean, hop on Twitter and find out which races are cool. And how, yeah. how do you, how do you in, make that leap? In Europe, um, you train a kid named Steve Stewart who was a junior in Florida and he was taking it as far as he could. He was lucky. He had parents that actually supported him. Yep. My parents just yelled at me the whole time. Um, and he got a, he got a contract over there and they said they want one more. It was right after Lamont had kind of had success. So they were like these Americans, let's get an American. So I was somewhere between a pro racer and a PR stunt. I held my own. Love it. Love it. Okay. Barely. Race in Europe, come back, become a writer. Yeah, because I went to Europe, there was no internet, and and you know um, I'm a big fan of Alan Lim and Bijou Thomas in their latest book, uh -huh. the, the Table, the Feed Zone Table. But I realized I had a pro contract, and I could have taken it, and I, for the life of me, I hit my head. Why didn't I stay over there? I was really lonely. I had nobody to talk to in Spain, yeah. and even though I speak in Spanish, I think you can identify with this. Big time. It's like I was just lonely, and when I've been over there with. Uh, Christian Vandeveld and Tim Johnson once in Girona, you could see it in their faces. It was like hard. And so all my communication was done by writing. So I was like, I kind of like writing. So hence I came back and became a journalist. That is incredible. Um, yeah, it's, it, Girona, Nice, Monaco, these places have become cycling meccas more recently. They are magnets. They, you know, you see primarily the number of Anglo-Saxons who are ending up in those places, uh, be it Australia, uh, England, New Zealand, so on and so forth. Um, because I think they need that community. Yes, you can train your your brains out. You can get your teeth kicked in for so long. You get yelled at in other languages by your team director. Oh. But you need to decompress afterwards. And that's why I think when I left Girona, there were 100 plus male, female, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three pro cyclists in Girona alone. Um, and completely, I can relate to the writing part. I. I had the benefit of the internet, so I could I could tell a, somebody actually read it. Spin a yarn on <laughs> on a blog. Um, yeah, there's there's so many stories. I don't care what level you're racing at in Europe. I don't care what races you're doing. Big, medium, small, tiny, local kermesse. Right. There's a story. There's a hundred stories in they're each of crazy those. Crazy over there. Yeah. How hard they go and the things you have. I mean, yeah. Uh huh. It's a whole different ballgame. So turned publisher, mm -hmm. the ride. Yeah. Tell me about it. Probably wrote about young Ted King um, what would, and Robbie King, yeah. your brother. Uh -huh. um, it was the same. It was the thing I started. Um, I came back. I got a degree in journalism, picked up a job as a as a daily reporter. But at nights, I started a desktop publishing thing with the woman that is now my wife. And we kind of got it going. And we ran it for 14 years. I started a magazine the same year the World Wide Web was launched. Oh, so, that's brilliant. I have I a friend who... Uh... <laughs> Turned down a job at Google in order to get into newspaper publishing. <laughs> True story. He is now a very successful individual. Hi, Jordan. Yeah. Um, How's that going? How that decision? not the greatest decision at the time, but he's he's redeemed himself in yeah. spades. Yeah, I've learned. So yeah, we ran a. But I was starting it, and we just covered initially just started covering uh, a lot of racing stuff. But then I learned this advocacy stuff was crazy interesting. About the time I live in Lexington, they were building the Minuteman bikeway through, and it was these bloodbaths of meetings were breaking out over building this rail trail. And uh, it just, boy, advocacy is is like its own uh, silo you can go into, and it's just as fascinating. And people are, the one thing I've learned after all these years is a lot of different people like a lot of different bikes for a lot of different reasons, and they love it just as much as you do, Mr. Lycra Panty Guy, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and Truth. they're really into it. So for the past 35 years, cycling outside of family, cycling has been probably the biggest definer of who you are. 
and advocacy is arguably the biggest uh, uh, component of the past 35 years because it, the importance of it yeah. to you, to me, to quite frankly, everybody who's listening to this podcast, whether you ride once a year or 365 days a year, it is a quagmire. It is a uh, can of worms, but I want to open it up. I want to jump into it. Welcome to here we go. Cycling advocacy. Um, let's talk about something we were talking about about five minutes ago, pre well before we started the podcast. The concept of the the different ways people who ride bikes uh, categorize themselves and how that is much more of a detriment than it is a benefit. So you know the concept of what is a cyclist? Is it a bike racer? Is it a commuter? Is it, I've used this term in the past, the, the bike racer is holier than thou. You know, if you wear so-and-so spandex and you wear the right glasses the cool way, then, then you know, you tend to consider yourself something of an elitist. Explore that. How the heck do we, do we sure. change advocacy well, using all facets of people who ride bikes? We need everybody. Um, before we, as we were walking down here, um, and I owe this to my good friend, Tom Francis, who's still with mass bike. Um, uh, the concept of intersectionality, I'm going right into the deep end here. But if I was to go, if I was to get out a dry erase board, Ted, and say, I'm just going to put words on the board and you go thumbs up, thumbs down, good or bad. And I was to say Lycra. And then I was to say, um, uh, uh, helmets, or I was to say lights at night, or things that a lot of your listeners are like, yeah, this is obvious, right? You'd be surprised how divisive that can be. Um, bike lanes or not, are they good? Are they bad? Whereas you have, and every one of these things radically splits people, running red lights or not. Okay, now I have certain opinions on all these things. You'd be blown away how much I had my ass tarred and feathered mm -hmm. over these things. Um, when you start to look at it, you know, Google has this phrase, question your lens. And we have to question our lens about all this stuff because the cycling experience for, you know, a kid in Roxbury is a different experience for a kid in Brentwood, New Hampshire. Huh. So You nailed it. You used to say I was from Portsmouth, New Hampshire I nailed when it. I won the Portsmouth Criterion. <laughs> Brentwood. Brilliant. And let me, let's take a couple steps back and, and qualify all this. You're speaking from experience as right. a lifelong commuter. You are also executive director of Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition, uh -huh. Mass Bike to right. the layman. I mean, man, open up. You could talk about that for a very long time. Like, what is your job as executive director of Mass Bike? Because Mass uh, Boston, in particular, has made enormous inroads in infrastructure, primarily for the benefit. I mean, yeah, go. Well, I inherited it from a great guy named Dave Watson, who uh, had the job for eight years, a different type of guy entirely. Um, he was much more about policy, and uh, he, he did a great job. He got us into a lot of, uh, he got us he got us to the table of a lot of important uh, decision-making places. I was a much more public-facing person, but the job is every two weeks, make payroll. Every month, make rent. Smart. And then after you're doing that... Um, it's really to, uh, my thing was to raise the profile and to grow the membership of it and to really get it to where people understood what we were doing because people didn't understand what advocacy is. They, uh, passing a state law is really, really, really hard. I'm really proud to say we just passed the largest law in the history of Massachusetts bicycle legislation. Wow. Uh, has several things like a three foot passing law finally, which we didn't have statewide. Statewide. Wow. And lower the speed limit if you don't. And most roads are now down to 25. Uh, but the critical thing that I was excited about, which is like not going to affect you and I for probably like three, four, five years, is uniform crash protocol. If you crash in that town you know that that cop rides a bike and you might get treated well. If you crash one town over, which has a different DA, has a different judge, they're going to show up and go, Truth. what the hell was the cycling doing here? Why was he on a bike? Yep. So it's a little bit like, and I hate to, I don't mean, I'm, I'm going to use this. It's a little bit like sexual assault was 50 years ago. Like you just had a cop show up uh -huh. and just take a report. Um, now it's like, no, no, if it's a bike, 
or a pedestrian, here's what you're going to do, Lenny the cop. You're going to follow these steps. Wow. Don't take a report from a guy that's knocked out. Yep, yep, yep. And that's what we were happening. What was happening is that it was the bike rider had was just the reporting was horrible. So we're actually um, they hadn't updated the teaching of cops in Massachusetts since 2008. The sheriff had not even been on the ground yet. The, <laughs> that that emblem you see. So as a result of this law, we're probably going to move up to the top three Massachusetts in the bike friendly ratings. And uh, wow, excellent. Which we're what, ten years that. ago was oh we were dismal. 150th. We were way down. Yeah. So now we're moving up. Great, Scott. And so as, sorry, I know of Boston as being a, a very unfriendly cycling city a decade ago, and it made huge inroads as Mass Bike, as the name would suggest. Yep. It's the entire state. Yeah. Okay. Um, are there other such groups? Do you work with yes. the Connecticut advocacy uh, group? We work regionally. Yep. Then you have the East Coast Greenway Alliance. You also have People for Bikes, our friends, the League of American Bicyclists. Wonderful but organizations. in Massachusetts, we have Livable Streets Alliance. A little bit more walking and transit. There's about 40 groups working really hard and the Boston Cyclist Union who they just focus on Metro Boston because, can I tell you, we needed their help. Yep. At first, they were a threat. But I'll be honest with you, we've won the cities. We've won the governors. Largely because um, this stuff, dockless bike share. Here you are, you're a mayor. And they're saying, okay, we need a transit system. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Mayor, that's going to cost you about $12 billion. These guys from China, they want to put all these dockless bikes in here for nothing. Sure. I'll take it. Modern technology. So that's taking over. That's changing things. But I think the real thing, and I will I would love to hear from your readers if they want to chime in or you, is if you want to change American... Let me back up. The great Peter Drucker says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. The laws we pass or we choose to enforce, they only matter so much. It's culture, which is lobbying... Uh, advertising, marketing, uh, media. Uh, and so culture of cars has taken us, it's completely swarmed us entirely. It's, it's, it's been amazingly helpful as a culture in so many ways, and it's so deleterious to bike riders. Thank you. So if we want to change American transportation culture, you got to change suburban transportation culture. And how do you do that? Rail trails and bike paths. Fact, beautiful, and you get especially bikes away from vehicles, which brings up um, something that terrifies me and you and every person who rides a bike. Is there a cure for texting and driving? Is there a weapon to combat it uh, outside of social guilt? Yeah, well, we get what we tolerate. You've been to Europe. You yeah. don't get you don't get food to go in Europe. Do you remember that? The, yeah. There's not as many cup holders in the car. Well, it, and it's funny you say that because real quick aside, the strangest concept that I ever saw in Europe was a to-go espresso. Yeah. I've, I've started to see that. And I think it's like the Americanization of European coffee, but you're like, you're going to take this one sip to go. Anyway. Yep. By and large, you're hundred percent correct. Well, I think that we have to, um, you ever talk on the phone in France when you're driving? Cause they, a gendarme pulled a weapon on me, Holy like cow. stood out in the car and like, and it was like an automatic weapon. Sure. It wasn't. And it was like, they don't tolerate it. Yeah. Um, you have some cornerstones of law. I don't, don't get to get too deep into it. Um, but I think at the core of what we need to start to speak on is a person who is black should matter as much as a person who is white. A person that is a woman should matter as much as a person that is a man. It doesn't matter. You should matter the same. And a person on a bike should matter as much as a person in a car. We don't have it that way. Correct. People in cars think I matter more. Yep. And I'm not faulting them all, but it's, I feel the same way too when I'm behind the wheel. Agreed. Um, there is certainly an entitlement issue as we're being looked at by a drone. God, wherever Ted goes, these fans show up. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, there, there's an entitlement issue at play as soon as a car turns a corner and there are three cyclists one cyclist, whatever it is, you, f you can feel their blood boil. And to be perfectly honest, I think a lot of listeners and myself and you, you know, we feel the same way. Like you go around that corner and the cyclists are three abreast. And it's like, come on guys, gals, earn our place in the road. Be smart, be respectful, be cognizant. Um, courteous. Courteous. Yeah. I think learning proper etiquette on the road, it, whether you're on a bike or behind the wheel, it, it, 
it's so because there is not a school for cyclists because anybody who wants to pick up a bike and start riding and they want to ride in the middle of the road there is so much that has to change we need an enormous cultural shift whether it's cyclist or motorists yeah how do we feel like we get there it's i feel like it's a always a drop in the bucket and i don't mean to be pessimistic i'm trying i'm trying to see a positive end in sight what is the light at the end of the tunnel well i think rail trails are getting a lot more people out and about rail trails are great um connectivity to transit is great companies such as google actually embracing it uh uh, they're changing it dramatically. Uh, I also think the uh, uh, we we really uh, and I can tell you right now that your comment section is going to fill up right now, coming because I'm going to attract a different audience that they're like we screw the cars, those guys don't behave. Why should we? I don't subscribe to that, but right. I get the passion behind it. Yep. But honestly, I think Ted that the 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 um, it's it's going to really come down to um, uh, the numbers. We're, and I think there's a lot of things at work right now that are going to model T bikes pretty soon. E-bikes are going to have a huge factor in this. Dockless bike share is going to have a huge factor in this. Rail trails is going to really change things. Legally, we need to really look at, at what's called presumed liability, which is the cornerstone of all great bike law in Europe, and we don't have here, meaning the heavier vehicles deemed at fault. Wow. Um, but it really has to do with um, education and sort of people accepting it. Mm -hmm. You know, we rode bikes last week at the Grand Fundo. Andrew Ferris was there. Mm -hmm. We need Zdeno Chara, and yeah. we need those guys to speak up. You know, Matt Damon's riding a bike now. Madonna has been a bike rider. We need PSAs from those people saying it's cool. It needs to be normal. We need to normalize it. I like that. Um, yeah, you got to... Andrew Ferentz was the last published podcast. Came out just this morning, in fact, ah. with a little Tour de France coverage. Guy's good on a bike. Yeah. Oh, man. He's so freaking strong. Oh, my God. And he's not, well, he's not Johnny come lately. As you learn in the podcast, he's been riding a bike since his, before his time in the NHL. So I didn't know that. He's, I, uh, the dude's got I was trying to, to talk to him on yeah. King's Highway, and yeah. that didn't last long. Um, man, I just... I wish there was some sort of weapon the way that a cop can have a speed gun hiding behind the corner. I wish uh -huh. there was a way of shooting that laser at the car and seeing that there are whatever the heck kind of waves coming out of the car indicating that they're on the phone. I wish there was a way to turn on the car and immediately the, the driver's phone is off. Um, it's terrifying. I'm certainly guilty of texting and driving on occasion. It's so tempting. It's, it's a little jolt of dopamine you get absolutely when that text jingles. absolutely yeah. it's the same reason and you know take the vehicle out of the equation you wake up in the morning and you want to you want to check your feed you want to check your emails you want to check your text you want to see what you're missing and it's you know the studies are showing is actually making us as a society more downtrodden more sad more anxious more there's a little good news Please, I'm. I'm not trying to. I know. To be this is like everybody's pessimism. turning off the podcast. Yeah. This is bumming me out. Bikes are awesome. Um, we were. Uh, I took a little bit of heat last year because while I still at Mass Bike, we ran this uh, video of this surgeon, this Swiss surgeon that got uh, right hooked by an 18 wheeler, and the guy just kept driving. Uh, her name was Dr. Anita Kerman. We found security footage, and when the police report came out and said put 100% of the blame on the cyclist, and we were looking at the security camera, going, she did everything right. Well, a lot of people were like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't put that video out there. We put it out there, and it raised a – we were on all the newscasts. We were on NPR. We were on WBZ. It just went hugely viral. It went now. It went global. And uh, This was on, an accident in Boston, correct? Yep, 2015. Yep. She was hit and killed. The report came out just two years ago, which is common. Um, really raised – it's the reason that – provision of our law got passed saying cops have to follow a protocol. Uh, there actually is going to be a protocol. We're going to teach them what the laws actually are. Um, I think they do have a hard job and I think they do have a, uh, I think it is challenging. Uh, but I also, that thing, like I was in a coffee shop, nothing said that I was a cyclist on the Cape the week after that broke. And all these collegers were sitting in the coffee shop talking about that Anita Kerman case and they were talking about it like that truck driver was at fault. Wow. And that moves the needle. So, and we average 12 bicycle deaths a year in Massachusetts so far this year. We've had one. So, Noteworthy. I want to think 
that we've raised the cognition. People are checking their mirrors before they open the door, checking their mirrors before they turn. Um, those bike boxes, that signage, the enforcement, it starts to add up little by little. And the other thing is like, I got to be honest with you, charity rides make a big difference too. So that's why I'm psyched to be in the charity ride movement because it gets normal people, mm-hmm. particularly the boss who's really you know into something, um, into cycling. Nailed it. Man. As as a job, sorry, cycling advocacy, like I was just, how do you say, um, my, my optimism was not bursting at the seams three minutes ago as I was trying to explain my question. I understand the frustrations of cyclists everywhere to be in cycling advocacy. You need to be perpetually upbeat. Cause one of the questions I was going to ask today is, is it frustrating? Are you, are you often, you know, upset when you, when you roll into work, your optimism is palpable, which is outstanding. Uh, I mean, let's now segue. Like you said, you're doing more stuff with with charity events, with cycling events. I got to know you also years ago uh, as you were part of Best Buddies, and that yeah. is you're at Best Buddies full time now. I think it's. I think you're on a you're on the web page still for Best Buddies, and I'm way back in there in the lead group, kind of pinning it. It was great. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, Best Buddies International, founded by Anthony Shriver, uh, just like. Saw what was going on at the Pam Mass Challenge and other charity events. Uh, Pam Mass Challenge, great event, and Anthony wanted to start it. But what really changed was that Anthony, when he started, he would get out, wave, start the ride, get in the car, go to the next place, start and wave, He'd get in the car. Pull a new age Tom Brady. Correct. The tables have turned. Tom, when he was a backup, used to ride the full. Correct. Too too cool for school now, Tom. Come on, come on your bike again. We're hoping he sticks around afterwards. We're hoping he's listening to this podcast. Now okay, Anthony writes right. the whole thing. Now Anthony's into it. Which like, is huge. Not so into it. Yeah. But uh, the numbers of... Uh, and I train total beginners. And I will go one day from doing the Wednesday morning world's ride. Which Matt Roy says hello. Home, which, by the way, that guy can flat out fly. <laughs> uh, for a that guy was, that does that 600K from the audience. rides. Yep. And... Um, and then uh, I'll be doing complete beginner's rides. You know, I'm talking 10 miles an hour, teaching people how to get on and off the bike. Uh, you know, there's that 60% number. So many people want to ride bikes, but they're concerned. So sure. getting them to one feel safe is what charity rides, they're just getting them out there on the road. And it's there for a mission-based reason. Uh, in our case at Best Buddies, it's... Uh, Ours is slightly different because we are the cure. We're not like hoping for pharmacological research, which is all also noble. But we're like, it, this is what I love about Best Buddies. We're not only the cure itself, because all we are is like creating a friendship and socialization and jobs program for people with intellectual disabilities. But the, the idea is if you can make a person feel safe, like they belong and like they matter, those three boxes, if you check those three boxes... A person with Down syndrome can do great things. The same applies to a bike ride, Ted. You know, most people get to the parking lot, they're so freaked out. Yeah. Those beginners, if you can make them feel safe, like they belong, like they matter, once they're rolling, they're fine. But what a mess. (laughs) Getting them started. Man. And it's great. You've you've absolutely nailed it. Those three boxes. Safe, belong, matter. Two out of three doesn't quite cut it. It's a start. It, it's it's a start. One out of three is a start. Three out of three is success. Have you noticed the pecking order? Like I'm reading Sun Tzu's The Art of War again. Yeah. It's like the pecking order in the parking lot uh-huh. of like your Thursday ride. Oh my God. It's the pressure is so intense. And the guy, the poor guy shows up with an iPad on his handlebars. Yeah. Whoa. Right. And then it's, it's that stigmatization. It's that, what was the term? Inter- Intersectionality. Intersectionality. You no. see the guy. Or gal with the iPad on their handlebars. Chip them off. The, yeah, they're not. They're not. And vice versa. And vice versa. They see Joe Schmo with very fast-looking bike legs helmet. It's intimidating. And they go into react mode. Yeah. And they cast. There's just as much stuff coming from them towards the lycra-clad guy as there is from the lycra-clad guys to them. You don't realize they're building. Their barriers are being built all the time, and we need to dissolve those. The NRA, they don't have any barriers. You got a gun, you're in. It's not about being right. It's about being strong. Man, so, you got to just have somebody walk behind you collecting your quotes and then <laughs> putting them on T-shirts. 
What was the last one? You don't have to be right. You just have to. It's not about being right. It's about being strong. Uh, as a group and as like a population. That's our problem is that we divide amongst ourselves too much, I think. Oh, no, I agree with you. You're at the party. It's like, oh, I agree with you. Those guys are assholes. Yeah. Well, I'm not one of them. Well, actually, they're all they're they're all your crazy uncles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're still in your family. Um, well, we'll take a quick tangent right here. You watching the tour? Loving this tour. Okay, I don't know what happened today. Oh, my word. Today is the final day of the Alps. Yes. Yesterday was fascinating, and I bring it all up because... Basically, the the race looks like it's going to be Sky versus everybody else because Thomas and Froome, and you know, I'm saying this not knowing what happened today, and it's almost like everybody else, the Quintanas, the Landas, the Nibelis, the the all, everybody else who's a GC contender who's still marginally in it against Sky, like they have to coup and work together in order to to take down this giant. I am going to be riveted to my television. It's a great stage. Yeah. So it's I, one of the great. It's as great as the Roubaix stage was. Okay, it's Which, that good. D- Favoring a different type of run. Sure, completely. Uh, what was fascinating? What I found fascinating watching the Roubaix stage and then especially checking in afterwards, I had a hunch that the guys who who did decently well were gonna yeah, were kind of enjoying it. I talked to guys afterwards, the Ian Boswells, yeah, the I Lawrence heard you, I, Yeah, I heard your show. They they had a blast. They had a blast. I mean, sure, if you, you go down and break a bone or you, you lose time, yeah, you're going to hate it. If you're Bardet and spend the majority of the time in the caravan, you're not going to enjoy it. But Don't you love, though, that the same 20 guys don't fall? Sure. Every time they have that stage, yeah. it's like, how come? Yeah. Uh, and, and we're talking about the cream of the cream of the cream of the crop. Right. Like, there's no one in the pro peloton who's a bad bike racer. They're all good. But yeah. even I was watching that going, and you know, I've come to love... I, uh, uh, gravel stuff is so enchanting to me because it's really interesting. And New England gravel is particularly interesting because you, you think you got it. Then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, wait a minute. This is a pretty sharp turn. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's some loose stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's, it's been a, uh, and watching that stage, I was like, what the hell? Here's my question to your listeners. Maybe the comments can come in. Why don't they wear mountain bike shoes and pedals on that stage? Just put the outrigger out. You know what I mean? That's Can't you see question. Timmy Johnson like going into those turns? Yeah. Where'd they learn how to corner on the shit, you know? Well, right. You take a, I take a guy like Peter who, you know, he could be a professional trials rider. I stand right. by that. I mean, he is having a blast on that stage. Um, there are plenty of people who are skittish who can't pull a wheelie to save their life. And, and they're a bit more worried. However, given that, like all the more reason to wear the mountain bike shoes. I think it's because a mountain bike shoe is going to wear weigh an extra sixty grams. Yeah, and at the end of the day, and you're in the ER with a broken collarbone. As goofy as yeah. it is, they're they're we're still all weight weenies at that. <laughs> um, you so sorry. Explain explain to me what your your job is day to day now. Best buddies at Best Buddies, director of cycling experience. How's so, that for a job? That sounds. As awesome. Peaceful and fun loving as it gets. It is great. Um, but it's also, um, uh, there's a lot, I do a lot of those training rides. Mm-hmm. Like, you ever pass the guy on the ride and he's pushing, you know, everybody says they want my job. I go, okay, yeah. tell me how to push four people up a hill at once. Right. And they're like, get out uh, of bungee cord. So, when you were talking about riding with people, I mean, you were, you were riding with people who are getting ready for the, for any particular Best Buddies Challenge. I've had the pleasure of riding Best Buddies Challenge Boston, Hyannis. Yep. So we rode from Boston down along the cave out to Hyannis. Beautiful day, beautiful party. As much as I was dishing on Tom Brady, I got to play uh, play pass with Tom. I got to... Um, I was the commentator. During the race? Yeah, you and I got to commentate as Tom... Was, they were on tandems? Yeah. It was a tandem short course crit. Right. Tom is the pilot. Um, a buddy at the motor. Katie Mead as exactly. his buddy. Yeah. That was outstanding. So yeah, to our non informed listener, tell us about Best Buddies Challenges. Well the challenge is basically you do a hundred mile ride either in New England or you do a hundred miles in California. We also have two training camps and we're launching some adventure rides, like week long adventures. Oh, that's awesome. I'm winking to Ted like he would be a great guy to come out and join us. If only you had the people for it. Um and then we have um but the hundred mile rides are basic, uh, you know, point to point, huge parties. As you could see, they throw. The one thing I knew when I took the job is those that Kennedy family knows how to throw a party. Yeah, that's no fly by night operation. Yeah, there's some infrastructure. When you have what 
four trucks of showers upon arrival. Yeah. That's a blast. And it's, and the you ride, finish the ride the shower, and the meal's nice. good at the ride. It, the meal's better than any meal you have at any bike ride. And that's not the meal. That's I, like the pre meal yeah. before you go into the party where they've got, I don't know who we had when you were there, but you know, we've had Casey and the sunshine band and the B 52s. It's hilarious. Guy Fieri. Guy Fieri is our cook for the food and wine, who by the way is a great human being. Uh, his stories, the after hour stories with him are incredible. Yes. Uh, people like Carl Lewis and all those celebrities are around. We do one in California. That's just as amazing down the Pacific coast highway. Hearst, uh, the Hearst castle. But the one that you'll really like is the Miami ride. Yeah. It's Friday at rush hour in Miami. So it's like, it's everything you've, it's your culmination of life. Total life police work. motorcade. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. And it's real Limited small. Limited to 70 riders. Yeah. They got to pay a big coin. They got to go to the, they can go to the, um, the, the gala that night, which is like going to something out of the hunger games. Miami, like a Miami gala is to be not to be missed. Um, but it's two by two. And my job is I show up and Christian Vanneville, George Hincapie are there. Tim's done it. Lynn's done it. Uh, talking about Tim Johnson, Lynn Bissett. Mm-hmm. Um, so many good riders. The Frank McCormick is typically on it as well. A lot of people don't know maybe the greatest rider of his generation. Agreed. Um, and my job, oh, and now we have Chris, this guy named Chris Froome does it. Never heard of him. I know. And I'm leading the ride. <laughs> <laughs> so job one is Get in line. we're not going to knock this guy down. Yeah. But we he, keep it two by two, uh-huh. and we can't drop you. You paid a lot of money to get in this thing. So Total distance? 70 miles. And when we go over those bridges, we've had Andrew Talansky because he's from uh-huh. Miami. He's probably coming back. But it's like yumping yippers. I got to push some out of, let's just say, a less experienced rider with a not perfect physique. That overpass never looks so big. Yeah. I got to, our job in the back, we got to push people. You get, e bikes exist. They do. I mean, you could, you could tell a great story by bringing cycling advocacy to the best buddies oh. and promoting e bikes for the sake of. I think we're going to do that. Yeah. I think we're almost there. Uh, well, yeah. My speaking of which, e bikes here in America, that's a polarizing issue. Are you yay that's or nay? That's another one. I'm super yay. I freaking love them. I think they're great. Um, I think everybody who's complaining because their Strava is getting torn down, grow up. Yeah. <laughs> I sorry. can't. I, I can't really laugh enough. If you're losing to a motorcycle in your Strava KOM, go home and high five yourself because okay. life's, life's too short. And I think that they're great. I, I think the big issue right now that in the advocacy world they're fighting over is um, how do we regulate them? Because some can go over 30, some can, you know, there's all these different classes, three classes. But my thing is, um, why don't we just have speed limits on bike paths and actually enforce laws? I got pulled over on a bike path. Really? I think the only thing that got me out of it because I wasn't the the clad bike racer was I had a backpack on and I was actually commuting. And I went, I think I went 19 and a 15. <laughs> um, so I didn't, you know, it's not your, whatever. I was it's going, good I was, they were actually doing something 30% over the speed limit. Nearly. I had a great conversation with the cop. He was very kind to me and he let me go. And yeah, I'm like, you know what? You're right. I should not have been speeding here. Typically have a conversation with the cop and you'll, you won't get sure. ticketed. I think he's probably having just as much of a kick pulling over cyclists as Pulling yeah. over cars. So yeah, yeah. you probably have a good conversation. But yeah, pro e-bike. Very pro e-bike. Especially, that's going to also lead to cargo, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. My N plus one for me is a is an e-bike box feats. You know, the bucket bikes, the yeah, big boxes. Yeah, I call them the dump trucks. Yeah. That's like coming up next. I see grandchildren on my horizon. Yeah. Get in, kids. Oh, man. Bikes are awesome. See, we brought that optimism back into this conversation. It's right back. I love it. Yeah, I think they're, um, the sales are good of e-bikes. I think that uh, I love the new ad with Peter on it. The, yeah, the yeah, one that just they saw loved. that one yesterday. That was great. All of his ads are great. He, I think... Agreed. If you want to talk about optimism, your friend Peter Sagan is probably the greatest piece of optimism we've had in this sport, in this culture, yes. for a long time. Yes, and I think it speaks to his talent, his ability to preach the message that bike riding is fun is is... It's his talent. It sort of reminds me of if I were to jump into a Cat 5 race, I could probably tool people for and pull wheelies. And, and he's doing that in the Pro Tour. His He's incredible. Ability supersedes 
But I also love how he has the interview he did with, uh, uh, forgive me for not knowing the interviewer's name at the time, where he was like, yeah, but what's your strategy? Because I don't know. I follow yeah, the wheels. Exactly. Um, I don't know. I, there is no train set up. There's no, you know, you got to remember, Mary McConlog made um, two Olympic teams with nothing on their dashboard. Mm-hmm. Never had a heart rate monitor on. Um, Tim Mitchell, the two-time Masters world champion running the CCB Velo to exercise physiologist. I'm talking to him. He goes, well, what about power? He goes, I don't know. I haven't used power since 2010. Yeah. People are so into these numbers and then they don't know that we're at Hemlock Gorge. They don't know that this Hemlock Gorge exists. They don't know that turtles lay eggs in June. They don't know. I do think- you give, do you give Froome a hard time for staring at his stem? Chris Froome staring at his stem. And, and I kid about the, that. I mean, the prettiest form on a bike. No, he's not a beautiful man, but my goodness, he's fast. Oh um, gosh. And he's yeah, a really perceived nice guy rate too. of exertion. Look around. I like, right. again, I'm guilty of it. I, I train with all sorts of numbers, but I love getting lost. I love when there's no mapping feature. I love when, I love when my Garmin has died and I, I can't yes. ride with anything, but I'm going to hit a numbered route somewhere. Bingo. I'm going to hit, yeah. Ride more, train less. That's my mantra to all my riders, especially in the charity ride movement. Mm-hmm. These knuckleheads are like so into this 30 minutes of this and I want to do this and that. They've compartmentalized their lives and they've forgotten how to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but ride more, train less. I think it's the optimization. I coach a handful of people. I coach, uh, give it, give or take, six or eight, depending on the year, time of year. And often they're going to cram for the test. So there's an event that they're, they've been, you know, through work and life they weren't able to do. So they have one month, they have four weeks to get ready for whatever event. And they need to optimize. So they, they need that 40-20 workout for 30 minutes because they have that sure. where they fit it in. I'm completely with you though because yes, I want to fulfill my role as the coach, but I'm also like, just go ride your bike. You want to have the best time in four weeks? Ride your bike every day. What's the quote? If you don't have time, if you can't find the time to ride in and oh man, I'm butchering it. Bill Strickland. All right. It was oh, I something love like, If you can't find an hour to ride in a day, find an hour and a half or something to that effect. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that, um, you have to, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for long walks. I think there's a lot to be said for roaming. I think there's a lot to be said for doing your yard work yourself instead of hiring a landscaper. Um, but everything that we're finding out now is Eddie Merckx was right. The science is backing up that Eddie Merckx was right of ride lots, ride lots, ride lots going away from uh, max. This will, I'd love to see the comments on this one, but Less focus on uh, on VO max and more focus on lactate threshold, which sounds fancy, involves hoses and things like that. But really, it's a matter of if you just ride, you're actually going to be faster when you need that. That goes up mm-hmm. just by riding. That's my good news to the people I work with: is riding slow is still riding good. Hundred percent. You need that base. It's all about that base. And Chris Froome yeah. never trains two days in a row. He will train, yeah. and then the next day is a ride. Now, it's 10 hours. <laughs> but, yeah, he rarely will, will be, like, on a focused regimen huh. more than one day. So it's always true? followed up. He well, I came with, from Cam Worth, so you know I was going to say, uh, Caro. He works with... <laughs> oh, Cam another, another great guy on our yes. best buddies plan. Uh, Cam Worth, former teammate. We seem to have a lot of former teammates come up with this. Uh, we were teammates <laughs> on Liquid Gas. Your teammates, super far throwback for one week at Tour of Georgia in 2007. That had to be like his first year. Quite literally. I think he rode the Olympics the year prior. He picked up the bike. He was recruited to race with us on Priority Health, the Tour of Georgia, because everybody knew he, well, some folks knew that he had a big engine. He was not a cyclist at that point. He has an enormous engine. Um, he and I joke at the end of that race, having just met a week prior, he's like, Oh, I'll see you in the pro tour. And I'm like, I have no aspirations to get to the pro tour. That's my second year pro. I'm just trying to like make it year to year in the States. Fast forward. Oh, four years. And we're teammates on liquid gas. Oh, I might. Yeah. Here we are. Told you. He's like, a riot. He is eternally optimistic. Yeah. He spins yarns better than most people I know. He is a great storyteller. Um, you never Set know where you're going to see him. record last year for yes. the bike leg. The guy, um, exactly. He's got a motor. He likes nothing more than going out for crazy, hard, unstructured ride, which is why he and Richie one day rode something insane. I think they rode like 300 miles on a really long training ride early in their season. 
Wow. It didn't set him up for the best year that year, but it's, <laughs> it, they logged some miles, some Ks in the bank, and they've both ha- found enormous success since then. So yeah, goes to the point. But I also agree if you have a, if you've got something in June, pack it in in March. Would you agree? Like March is going to be you can almost like do your homework in March. Yeah. And, yes. And, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, especially at the the hyper. Well, it all depends on which events we're talking about. Right. But you'd be surprised how sorry yeah. people are condition-wise. And those are my people. They're nice people. They're wonderful They help people. me with other things like math. <laughs> Maths. Um, what else you got? You got anything for me? Man, there is so much going on, but uh, uh, with the tour and all going on, I mean, I am excited as all get out for the... Uh, I just, I, I just want to say optimism. I've never been... I I can't wait to see what's going to happen. There are so many things going on in so many different ways in cycling that uh, I think we are on the verge of historic change. I love it. That's outstanding. Here's one that did come in from the one and only Matt Roy. Uh-oh. Do you have any regrets? Wow. Yeah. Uh, interesting question. Um, maybe sticking it out in Europe. Maybe yep. that's one. But then when I look at the generation I was in, it would have gotten really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you're right there and you don't realize you're right there. Uh, and that's and that's my cycling regret. Um, not a whole lot of others. Um, the uh, I've been really blessed with... I'm 57. I'm not taking any medication. I'm I'm riding tonight with a bunch of 20-somethings. Like you know? I said when I saw you the other day, I'll say it again. You look fit as can be. I weigh what I weighed in college, which is weird. That's awesome. Um, but it's, uh, you know, to get that question from Matt Roy is flattering because I think he's had a dream career as well. Agreed. A uh, really interesting human being. And uh, I would say that uh, no real regrets. Uh, now I'm on the bucket list phase. You know, you want to just start doing, I want to do Rebecca's ride and the private Idaho ride. I want to do Terrific. Dirty Kansas. Yep. I want to do, and it's just now I'm at a, my kids are getting older and I feel like I'm just getting started, which is if there was one thing I could tell people that are struggling, mm-hmm. like it, it gets, it, it keeps getting better. You're not, when I was racing, quote unquote, seriously, I hate that term seriously. Um, uh, if you were in your thirties, we were like, what the hell are you doing here? Kent Bostic or those names, you know, it's like, no, that that's like now it's, it's all changed. I think we're redefining what age is and the bikes are part of it. Uh, funny recent conversation to that point, the bicycle ends up being this lowest common denominator. If you're a former skier, tennis player, runner, new to a sport, generally the bike is going to be the, the way you go because you're going to wear out your knees, your shoulders, it's your totally hips. Totally true. I never thought of it. Like that. Um, I mean, it's a funny thing to say as a 35 year old, but yeah, it's awesome that hey, that's, that's the, the cheeky mystique of the bike. You know, if you like football and you decide to pick up football at age 40, yeah. you're not going to go play, you know, pick up football. You're going to watch it on Sunday. Yeah. If you like cycling, you get to experience it. And that is the, I think the biggest disconnect between cycling and virtually any other sport out there. And you know, if you can just master the Tao of riding two by two, oh. which it takes an hour to learn and a lifetime to master. Yes. Um, you can, you'd be surprised who you can ride with. I can't, I'm not going to do much on the golf course. It'd be embarrassing if I tried to golf with a pro or if like, but I would say that one of the great things of you being a pro is like, you can take, you know, a middle-aged sponsor out for a ride and make that person feel like, wow, mm-hmm. like they get it. Mm-hmm. Sadly, they, then they start to think they can ride in the pro tour. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and that's what I get to do. I get to te- I get to give that experience to people, which is like really amazing. Man, I don't know whether to wrap it up or to, to preach our two-by-two two rules. The two-by-two. Two so stuff. important. Bad habits. So many bad habits. Yeah. There. I think... It's another show. Okay, we'll keep it to another show. But I'm clearly with you. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more peaceful than a well-ridden two-by-two. It can be two cyclists. It can be 2,000. But it's something that I really appreciated in my time. I think maybe I've never thought of it this way. I loved my time in the Pro Tour. The things that I'm going to miss are police escorts and knowing that when you're ripping down a mountain, there's not a car incoming. 
and yeah, the the peaceful flowing nature of a two by two pace line. Oh, when it's done training right. camps. Oh, usually I hated training camps, but man, you just made me think very fondly of them. That's what I get to do at Best Buddies. Our training camps are Froome's coming on a training camp in December. If people want to ride with Chris, sadly it comes with me, but uh, Malibu. So okay, throughout what is the Best Buddies dot. Uh, bestbuddieschallenge.org lovely get you there and uh, we do great things we have more things coming that are gonna blow you away and we always need great media savvy former legendary pros to come out and ride with us brilliant especially of New England origin um, Richard Freeze I really really appreciate you introducing me to this uh, what is it a quarry falls a gorge, gorge. headlock gorge this is beautiful. It's a little slice of heaven here in s suburbia, Boston. Metro Boston. Metro Boston. This is not the suburbs. Richard, thank you for your hard work in the sport of cycling. Thank you for taking the time. This has been a pleasure. Flattered. Great show, by the way. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.